At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Thursday, June 19th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, here of the Henry Hub. Henry Hub spot gas prices, $5. It's one of those financial things like the the DAX or the FTSE. And if you watch CNBC or if you watch Bloomberg, you'll hear all these references to the Henry Hub. And so I was talking about Ukrainian gas prices yesterday, actually on the show and in real life. And someone said something about the Henry Hub. I'm like, who is this Henry Hub? I always hear about Henry Hub. Okay, so Henry Hub is not a who. It's uh, an it or a there there. It's a place. It's in Louisiana where the big gas pipelines are. It's the place where they set the prices. Now, here's the interesting thing. We just narrowly missed having the greatest financial name ever because Henry is named for the Henry Hamlet of uh, Louisiana. Henry High School was there. And the benefactor of this place was a guy named William Henry, who was alive about 170 years ago. And we almost had, instead of the Henry Hub, listen to this, the guy's real name, he immigrated from Germany, and his real name was William Henry Kitten Cat. So this whole thing was almost the kitten cat price, kitten cat spot gas. But no, William Henry kitten cat dropped the kitten cat. And now he was just William Henry. Therefore, Henry spot gas. On the show today, Adam Davidson of Planet Money will be by to talk about the minimum wage. He's a little scared about it. You know, he's not William Henry kitten cat scared, but um, he has um, uh, cautious flags to raise in the spiel. I'll be giving you some song hacks. One song hack, a song I'm kind of obsessed with and think that is uh, pretty universally applied. But now, Senate races, control of the Senate in 2014. How will that go? Here are some numbers. The 2014 elections are a little less than five months away with more Democratic seats in play. Remember, only a third of the Senate is up for election every two years. So it'll be hard for the Democrats to keep control of the upper house. Hard, but not impossible. Here to talk about control of the Senate in 2014 is an expert from the website 538, but not that expert. I'm sorry I'm not Nate. I I apologize. I can only be the person I am, but it was my pleasure to do it and step in. (laughs) Yeah, well, do you have to say that once a day, once every other day? I'm sorry I'm not Nate? Um, Well, it depends. If someone's looking for a good-looking person, in fact, I think it may, in fact, be uh, an honor to meet me instead of Nate. But if they're looking for a more knowledgeable person, in that case, yes, I do have to say that at least twice a day. You're like, while I lack the name brand recognition, I am pleasing to the eye. That, that, that's exactly correct. At least that's what my mother tells me. Harry Enton covers politics for 538. He is not Nate Silver. Here's Harry, a smart guy on his own. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. All right. What's your number? Who's going to control it? 
oh, if I had that number, I'd be off to Vegas, wouldn't I be? I, I would say that Republicans at this point, I think that Nate and I, uh, Nate Silver, obviously, and I agree, it's more likely that Republicans will take control of the Senate, win those six seats that are necessary in order to control the Senate, uh, than not. But Republican chances of taking control of the chamber are somewhere between 50 and 60 percent at this point. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it can swing either way. And I think that you even say that you predict Republicans to take 5.8 seats. And then you quickly acknowledge, yes, we know no one's actually going to take 0.8 of a seat. But I take your point. This means somewhere in likely but not extremely likely. Right. Have any of the primary results, so in other words, exactly who the person is who will be the Republican or likely Republican or likely Democrat nominee, has any of that actually changed your prediction at all? Obviously, I think the one race where a primary has changed things at least a little bit is down in Mississippi, uh, where Thad Cochran, who's the incumbent, is facing Chris McDaniel, who's a Tea Party candidate. And they're going to have a runoff in a few weeks. And if Cochran were the nominee, then it would be a clear Republican victory. Mm-hmm. If McDaniel slides into the nomination, then Democrats have at least somewhat of a chance to win down there. That won't make a huge difference. Mississippi is a very Republican state. And the white voters there go 80 to 20 for the Republican, pretty much no matter who the Republican candidate actually is. But it will at least give Democrats uh, a way in to potentially make the race competitive. All right, let's go to Georgia. And Saxby Chambliss is retiring. And it is possible, I think you have it within the perhaps 20% possibility that a Democrat could actually pick up this seat. Michelle Nunn, who's the daughter of Sam Nunn, is running as the Democrat. That's great name recognition. Plus, Michelle Nunn has shown in many ways to be a good candidate. Republican could be Jack Kingston, could be David Perdue. Does it matter what Republican, which of those two guys gets the Republican nomination? And what are the chances for the Republican or the Democrat in that race? Sure. So I, I think that Jack Kingston, who's a congressman from the Savannah area, is most likely to get the nomination. Most of the polling shows um, that Kingston is ahead by about five to ten points. Most of the other candidates who ran in the initial first round have endorsed Kingston. In either case, as you mentioned, none has at least somewhat of a chance to pick this up. Uh, we have the odds mm-hmm. of 70-30, and none has run a strong campaign. She has none, none of the Democrats being the 30. Right. None in Democrats being the 30. Georgia is a state that, although it's in the South and has voted Republican in every presidential election uh, since 1996, is not a state that as, is as Republican as, say, Mississippi um, is. And it's a state that's also becoming a lot more diverse. Um, African Americans are moving um, back into Georgia at a very uh, fast rate. Urban areas are becoming much larger portion of the electorate. So that will give Democrats a way in. But still, the state does lean Republican, um, and it is a midterm election where, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics will not vote in as large a numbers as they would in a presidential year election. But it's, it's probably, I would argue, the best chance for a Democratic pickup out of any of the seats. Wow. Now, two races I love are in Louisiana and Kentucky, because there you have incumbents. In Louisiana, it's Mary Landrieu, a Democrat. In Kentucky, it's Mitch McConnell, a Republican, who are doing better in the polls in their races than they are in their ratings. If you ask the people in that state, do you like your senator? They say no, but they're both doing decently in the polls. Allison Lundergren Grimes is going to be the uh, Democratic nominee against McConnell in Kentucky. I think so much will come down just how good of a candidate she is. Let's put that aside for a second and talk about Louisiana because they have what's called a jungle primary. I love this. Their jungle primary is not based on party affiliation. So they don't weed out and get one Republican to run against Landrew. 
Who, if anyone, does that favor? Does that system favor Landrieu or favor Cassidy, who's the highest polling Republican? First off, the jungle primary is one of my favorite parts of someone who loves voting systems. It really, it really throws things up in the air. I would actually argue that Landrieu would benefit slightly from that. And the reason I would argue that is it turns out that in runoffs, African-Americans have tended to make up a slightly larger percentage of the runoff electorate than they have of the general election electorate. Even so, I still think that she's an underdog in the race. The fact of the matter is most of the polling that I have seen has shown in a runoff that she would be trailing at least by a little bit. And Louisiana is a state that is much more Republican than when she first came in in 1996. Remember, in 1996, Bill Clinton carried Louisiana when Landrieu was first elected. And the state has slowly but surely gone more towards the Republican column over the last few years. At least at this point, the odds do not favor her. Do you look mostly at the polls, the reliable polls in the specific races, or do you take into account things like President Obama's approval rating or the unemployment rate or other macro factors? Because, of course, the danger of doing that is those could be reflected in the polls also. That's right. And so, obviously, my own research indicates that the polls at this point are the best judge of who's going to win in November. But what's also the case is other factors such as fundraising and presidential approval ratings can, in fact, at least at this point, add to our predictive value. That is, races tend to sort of slide towards you know, where the approval ratings tend to suggest, so that, for instance, in Louisiana, President Obama's approval rating is right now probably in the low 40s. So that would suggest, you know, if there was a tie right now in the polls, then what on average we would expect to happen at the end of the election when the election actually took place is that Landry would be down a few points. You wouldn't get blown out by any means, but on average, it would make her a slight underdog. Well, Harry, you answered 5.8, up from 5.7 of my questions excellently. So I want to thank you. Well, thank you, sir. Harry Anton is the senior political writer and analyst for 538.com. This episode of The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com gist and enter offer code gist at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Some great things about Squarespace is that it features beautiful design and it's simple, it's easy, and it has drag and drop content. I was thinking about this drag and drop content. That is what a good design of a website or some something like Squarespace that'll help you make your website, that's what it aspires to. It's sort of the best practices in website design, while at the same time, drag and drop is sort of the laziest way to dispose of a body. It's funny how that phrase can embody both both those things. And maybe you want to make a website based on that. If you do, Squarespace offers 24-7 support through live chat and email. And if you go to Squarespace, enter the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Squarespace, for sponsoring the GIST. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Joining me now is Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money. So, Adam, two years ago, I thought minimum wage was going to stay where it was and maybe not keep pace with inflation. But, man, there's such momentum behind it. And Seattle raised it to 15 bucks. And now there are – I was just 
walking past a march in New York where they're demanding $15 minimum wages. Is it a good idea? So this is a perfect example, the minimum wage, of where economic theory Mm -hmm. and actual economic data clash, I think, probably more than in any other area. So economic theory, there's no question. Minimum wage is a terrible, terrible idea. Zero question. It's a distortion of the market. It's a distortion of the market. It's setting a price. In other words, in the case of minimum wage, if you arbitrarily say you have to pay $10 an hour or $15 an hour, there's going to be some number of people who couldn't make that much who aren't going to get jobs. Yeah. So in theory, you absolutely should see, anytime there's a minimum wage, a decrease in jobs. And so I would say up until 15 years ago or so, the vast, vast, vast majority of economists, even left-wing economists, would say, yeah, there's a real big price to pay with minimum wage. Some might be for it for political reasons or other reasons, but oof, that's a tough one. Yeah. Then there was a series of very influential papers starting around 15 years ago that actually went out and looked at the data and said, well, what happens when we see minimum wage Because it was such a up? great theory that everyone agreed on. Like, why do that? Yeah. <laughs> but then someone said, well, we might as well. We might as well check it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we had a series of papers over the last 15 years that basically said, you know what? It doesn't make a difference. There's mm-hmm. not fewer jobs when you raise the minimum wage. Did they go back and said, maybe our theory is wrong? Wages are different from other things. So you would expect if you said no apple can be sold below $2 an apple, Mm -hmm. you would expect fewer apples sold. You'd expect a lot of apples gone unsold. Mm -hmm. But human beings are not just a supply. They also create their own demand. So when you raise a minimum wage, the workers who get that minimum wage start spending more money themselves. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to spend every penny you get as opposed to saving some of it. So if you saw a minimum wage increase, you actually would expect that suddenly all of those people would start buying more stuff. That might create new jobs. I mean, it is a transfer of wealth effectively from mm-hmm. the owners of capital mm-hmm. to labor. Sure. Uh, but but that's why a do trade-off. people only look at unemployment? What about things like, all right, people owning businesses are making less money. That's got to have some impact. There's no question it has to have some impact. We yeah. don't know the size of that impact. You know, and there is an argument that as you pay people more, they tend to be more conscientious. They're less likely to steal. They're, you know, there are trade-offs where maybe you actually also benefit. I think of the French riots. Do you remember like... 2005, 2006, there were all these riots in France, all these teenagers burning up cars. Yeah. and um, I can't name which arrondissement they were in, but yes. Yes, they were yes. in the banlieue, the suburbs yeah. of Paris and That's the suburbs right. of yeah, Lyon. Yeah, so yeah. NPR flew me over there when you and I were NPR colleagues to cover this thing. And I don't want to say anything, but this was part of their master plan to put you in dangerous situations. And if something happened, something happened. Yeah, you were well, a thorn in their side. You know what? I spent a lot of time in dangerous situations. <laughs> Paris was one yeah. of the better ones. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm flying on the plane. I'm reading everything I can about these riots. And they're saying, yeah. oh, these are Muslim youth. They like Al-Qaeda. Da, 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 da. There's this fear that this is like the launching of a, mm-hmm. you know. And when I get there, every kid I talk to says, we don't have jobs. There are no jobs. And so I ended up being an economics reporter, seeing everything through those eyes. I ended up doing a story about the life of a North African kid in the suburbs of Paris. And there is no work for them. And France had a much higher minimum wage. I want to say it was 15 euros an hour. I can't swear to that, but something like that in 2005, 2006. And there was truly nobody willing to hire these kids with very low education levels at that price. Now, you would think... If they could enter the workforce at a lower level, they could build up some work experience, maybe they would be on a better path. And so when I hear $15 an hour like Seattle or SeaTac, 
I will say that starts making me anxious. That starts making me think, wow, that's a lot of people you're cutting out. Yes, there is wealth disparity. Yes, there is a 1%. Is the way to make Americans more prosperous to transfer wealth between people who own business to the people who work for the businesses? Wouldn't it just be growing the overall economy be the more sustainable, permanent way to, you know, a better middle class? So I just spent the week researching economic data uh, of, of sort of the career tracks of different cohorts of Americans. And if you're not in the top 20 percent, which is around 100 grand a year, something like that, yeah. if you're not in that, if you're in the 80 percent, it is hard to see you gain, you have gained pretty much nothing from economic growth for 40 years, something like that. But right now, it is hard to tell a story in which most Americans benefit from overall economic growth. So I would say if what we want is shared prosperity, it's hard to see how you do that without transferring wealth. Now, transferring that's wealth a, is a good very, answer. Those are loaded, loaded terms. Yeah. But keep in mind, America has always transferred wealth dramatically. We have always transferred it from richer states to poorer states. We've always transferred it from richer people to poor people. We also transfer it from poor people to richer people in a variety of ways. So we want to have an America where the rising tide, overall growth, actually does help everyone. And you're saying so far it's only helped 20%. Uh, over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I had a conversation with my college roommate who's now my city councilman here in New York, Brad Lander, and he worked very hard to get this living wage ordinance. I think it was $11 an hour. And I told him my fears. I said, I think you're cutting off people. He was particularly targeting immigrants, often you know, uh, undocumented immigrants. And, and I was saying that's the most vulnerable people. That's a population where $7 an hour really is an aspirational wage mm-hmm. from their home country. And by going up to $11 an hour, an employer probably isn't going to choose the same group of people. And Brad said to me, I'm okay with that trade-off. I think it's okay to say if you have a job, you can raise a family on it. The big issue with minimum wage, the argument that one could have made a generation ago is, well, wait a second. The people making minimum wage are kids. These are 16-year-olds in their first job. And that is much less the case. The majority of people making minimum wage are raising a family. And so that argument is no longer available. But what makes me really worried is that on-ramp to employment. So I think what many economists would prefer is rather than have a public policy that sort of forces a a fixed wage price is have the government subsidize labor, you know, to incentivize labor in some way that will say, you know, if you only make below $8 an hour, the government will fill you up to, you know, $10 an hour or $12 an hour, something like that. It's very hard for politicians to make that case. You know, that involves raising taxes and things they don't like talking about. Well, Adam, I don't want to one-up you, but I was talking to my college roommate and he found a way to make a bong out of a honey bear. Really? Yeah. So I think he aspires to a minimum wage job. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, Adam. Adam Davidson is the founder of Planet Money. Thanks, man. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, wherein I share with you today my great song, Hack. Everything's a hack. It's not a hack. It's an insight, a brilliant insight that may be overly broad. And it's about 
one of the most important songs ever written by a Canadian about a bad thing that happened in international waters. Actually, I think it was the American side, because the song is the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Andrea, could you cue that for us, please? So as you know, the famous, this famous song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, it's got that great up and down tempo. Maybe it reminds me of the uh, waves on Lake Michigan lapping against the side of the ship. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. And it struck me as I was thinking about the Edmund Fitzgerald, this was many years ago, that many an other song could fit exactly into the melody of the Edmund Fitzgerald. In fact, it seems like a song, the kind of song where we've never heard a song like this before. But in a way, every song can sound like the Edmund Fitzgerald, right? Like Billy Joel, scenes from an Italian restaurant. A bottle of white and a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. They started to fight when the money got tied, and they just didn't count on the tears. But just to show you that I'm not cherry-picking songs, every song works to the tune of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oops, I did it again. I gave you my heart. But just to show that I'm not cherry-picking these songs, Andrew, get on that mic, give me any song, this is not a setup, and we'll see if it works to the tune of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay, Beatles. I want to hold your hand. When I tell you something, I hope that you understand. I want to hold your hand. Amazing. But what I did was I surveyed the office and I just asked them, give me your favorite song. So a funny thing happens when you ask people for their favorite song or a certain type of person. Hey, Jordan, what's your favorite song? Uh, it's a loaded question. People don't want really want to tell you their favorite song or they can't quite access their favorite song because, you know, it's not just their favorite song. It's, as John Swansburg and I discussed, it's a little bit of signaling. What you're really saying is not necessarily your favorite song. You're projecting something about your taste. But I finally got everyone to admit a favorite song here or there. And let's Edmund Fitzgerald these songs. Here we go. Desperados Under the Eaves by Warren Zevon. Don't the sun look angry through the trees? Don't the trees look like crucified thieves? Don't you feel like desperados under the eaves? Heaven help the one who leaves. Prince. All right. Um, 1999? I want to be your lover or kiss. You don't need to be beautiful to turn me on. Just need your body dusk till dawn. Grateful Dead, um, Eyes of the World. Wake up to find out that you are the eyes, that you are the eyes of the world. Uh, Stratford on Guy by Liz Fair. I was flying to Chicago at night, watching the lake turn into blue-green smoke. The sun was setting to the left of the plane, the cabin filled with an unearthly glow. In 27D, behind the wing, landscape rolled like credits on a screen. Wow, and that one's about, I think, Lake Michigan, too. That's amazing. If you look at my iTunes on my iPod, the most played song is not that song. It is She-Wolf by Shakira. There's a she-wolf in the closet. Open up and set it free. Ah, 
There's a she-wolf in the closet. Let it out so it can breathe. <gasps> now, there's another thing. This, I mean, this is perhaps the greatest insight I've ever had in life. But just a couple days ago, I had another insight. And I don't know if this is going to work. So you know the song, Whoop, There It Is, right? I, I kind of forgot that there were actual verses to Whoop, There It Is. And uh, the verses are just really generic. You know, it's like, it's basically... Here's a stub bunch of stuff we got to say. We're going to say this bunch of stuff. It's going to rhyme. Let me hear some noise. DC's in the house. Jump, jump, rejoice. There's a party over here. A party over there. Wave your hands in the air. Shake the dairy, yeah. But then we're going to get to the good part, why everyone knows the song. And then... And so my point is that any song, especially songs that have a, a nice little ending place, but just about any song can serve as the verse to Whoop, There It Is. And it doesn't really hurt Whoop, There It Is. So let's do a couple of versions of that. Here we have Pavarotti's Nessum Dorma. I think there's Judy Collins singing Amazing Grace. Little Barbershop Quartet Works. How can there be any sinning? Sin, sin. And so finally, the bringing together of these two great music hacks would go like this. There's a party over here and a party over there. Wave your hands in the air, shake your derriere. These three words when you're getting busy, whoop, there it is. Hit me, whoop, there it is. Whoop, shakalaka, shakalaka, shakalaka. Whoop, shakalaka, shakalaka. Party people! And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is the pride of the American side. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, does not drink when he travels, though he was once seen fully loaded for Cleveland. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. There are a few up already. In fact, there are very, very many up. I love these reviews. Thanks. Keep them coming. You can listen in Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. To get an email every day that says, hey, the gist is up, go to slate.com slash gist email, and we'll send you that email. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I'm getting more active on the Facebook, trying to make some comments there. So go to Facebook, and I'll, and if you say something, I'll probably say something back. Email us at thegist at slate.com. Fellas, it's been good to know you. Thanks for listening. If you want to get down, I'm going to show you the way. Yeah, it is. Let me hear you say. Ooh.